Good morning, everyone. Very warm welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director of the Institute. And we're delighted to have here this morning Emily Thornbury, the Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs since 2016, and of course, MP for Islington South and Finsbury since 2005. And she's going to talk to us about foreign policy under Labour and the Foreign Office under Labour. And she's going to talk for about half an hour. She's got to go in exactly one hour because of doing PMQs this morning. So we will, a uh, mixture of, of uh, 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 I and you will fire questions at her. Emily, very warm welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Take this. Thank you, Bronwyn, for inviting me to speak to you today. And thank you to all our distinguished guests from politics, business, academia, the media, the charity world, and many other fields for taking the time to participate in this discussion today, which I'm aiming to lead for about half an hour or so, um, and which we can then hopefully have around half an hour for questions and a debate. So at the outset, um, can I thank Bronwyn and the Institute, its fellows and members, for the role that you play in public life. At this hugely testing time, both for our country and our world, where examples of good government are so desperately lacking, it is vital that we have an institution like this one, analysing and debating how the job of running our country should best be done. And it is because of the role that the Institute plays that I wanted to make this particular speech here today. And if I had to sum up what, will, what it will be about it, in an image, it would be the one that I see nearly every day when I walk down Whitehall. You know it. The magnificent facade of the, of the Foreign Office building and the statues by Armstead and Philip that adorn it, each of them depicting in human form the priorities with which diplomats inside were occupied when the building opened 150 years ago. Alongside the depiction of Britannia, we see statues of Asia, Africa, Australia, America and Europe, and statues for agriculture, manufacture and commerce. But we also see statues for art, literature and science, and for law, education and government. Statues that represented how the diplomats of the day envisaged their role in the world one that in theory, if not in the harsh realities of British imperial rule, uh, was about championing certain values as well as commercial interests. And what I want to speak about today is how a Labour government would seek to put values back at the heart of our diplomacy and by doing so help to transform what Britain is seen to stand for as a country. As many of you will know, the Labour Party is currently engaged in a detailed process of preparing for government one that is more essential and urgent than ever, given the current situation facing our country. And as part of that process, we are taking advice from a wide range of experts, whether it's organisations such as this one, or experienced voices from the civil service, or from previous governments. And one key piece of advice that I've received is that the best thing you can do in opposition is set out in public, in as much detail as you can, the policies you plan to introduce and the principles you plan to apply once you are in power. So it's not just a case of you preparing for government, but the civil service having a chance to prepare for you. And I entirely agree with that, because I believe 
that it should always be the case in our democracy with a permanent civil service that elected politicians are able to dictate the government's mission and agenda, but it should be for our civil service to decide the structures, mechanisms and staffing required to deliver those objectives. <laughs> and to help them do so today, I want to begin by talking about why I think the Foreign Office needs a change of direction and change of direction under new political leadership and then I'd like to set out the principles that I would apply if I am in a position to provide that new leadership, which will sit alongside the detailed policies on foreign affairs which the Labour Party has already set out in our manifesto and elsewhere. And in analysing the current state of the Foreign Office, I must start by admitting the damage done by the last Labour government in the period after 9-11, when ceding of policy control from King Charles Street to the number 10 sofa followed by the morass in Afghanistan and the disaster in Iraq, left the Foreign Office stripped of authority and influence, but nevertheless carrying the can for failures beyond their control. Which makes it all the worse that when William Hague arrived at the Foreign Office in 2010 on a mission to restore the authority and control lost during that period, he had to do so while simultaneously having to implement the enormous spending cuts forced on him in the coalition's first spending review. Cuts which not only removed or reduced our presence and our influence in dozens of countries, but which, in practically all of them, made us more reliant on locally recruited staff than <coughs> our own career diplomats, leaving us with a profound deficit in terms of our long-term knowledge that we hold in Whitehall about the rest of the world. So even before the events of the last three years, the Foreign Office was suffering two grievous wounds, one from misguided policy, foreign policies of the past 2001 Blair government, and one from the short-sighted budget cuts of the Osborne Treasury. And then came Brexit. The resultant, resultant aftermath of which has undoubtedly represented a crisis of confidence for the Foreign Office, something made worse immediately afterwards by the decision to carve out large chunks of its capacity to create the Department of International Trade and the Brexit Department. A mistake on Theresa May's part, which I believe was also compounded by putting Boris Johnson in charge of the Foreign Office during that crucial transition period, when inevitably his focus, such as it existed, was more on delivering the Brexit results that he had helped to engineer rather than leading a department focusing on all the other key issues in the world. So at a time when the Foreign Office was crying out for strong leadership to recover its, its, morale, its crisis of morale, what it got with Boris Johnson actually reinforced the sense of a department that had lost its way. And there's another important point about the impact of Brexit, in my view. Over the past three years, a diplomatic service that has traditionally enjoyed a reputation overseas for common sense, competence and clear-headed decision-making has found itself representing political masters back in Britain who are doing their utmost to destroy that reputation by the way that they're delivering Brexit. And even more significant than the crisis of confidence, reputation and leadership that Brexit and Boris induced at the Foreign Office, coming on the back of shortage of resources forced on it post the 2010 cuts, we have also seen what I believe is the department's biggest problem, the total muddying of its vision. We have seen a perceptible shift to make the promotion of trade 
business links and the financial bottom line, not just the top priority of Foreign Office staff based here and overseas, but one allowed to override all others, most notably the protection of human rights. A sense of priorities which I believe, without doubt, has blunted the government's ability to take a tougher line with Donald Trump over his consistent undermining of the world order, which from the Philippines and Honduras to Egypt and Bahrain has made our country dangerously indulgent of authoritarian regimes, and which, worst of all, has made us scandalously complicit in the war in Yemen and the humanitarian crisis it has caused. And what I believe the current government has allowed to happen, not just because of Brexit, but certainly exacerbated by it, is that the balance that we should always strike as a country between promoting our values and promoting our interests has tilted so far in the direction of our interests that our values have become an afterthought. If we need a reminder why such a mistake, why, why that's such a mistake, we, we will get one on Monday. Which that will mark the 30th, 30 years since the climax of the Iranian Revolution. An event so shocking to the Foreign Office that the then Foreign Secretary, David Owen, commissioned an internal inquiry to work out how they had failed to see it coming. <coughs> and one of the key conclusions was that the, the, the more the Foreign Office treated the Shah simply as a cash cow for arms sales, the more it clouded their ability to make an objective assessment of his rule. As Lord Owen said, there could be no better example of an embassy geared to selling British goods than Tehran in the 1970s. Yet that exclusive focus on promoting exports meant that our, di our diplomats had their blinkers on when it came to growing public discontent in Iran and the extent to which the Shah was letting down his own people. So, as well as the principal reasons why we should promote our values abroad as an end in themselves, there are also pragmatic reasons why we should never focus on commercial interests alone. But I fear that is exactly the mistake that we're now repeating. Look at the drift since 2011, when William Hague rightly declared that there would be no downgrading of human rights under this government. Pursuing a foreign policy with a conscience was, he said, in our long-term enlightened national interest. But then, just four years later, in 2015, George Osborne's visit to China earned praise from the state-run media, saying he was, quote, the first Western official in recent years who stressed more the re region's business potential instead of finding fault over the human rights issue. The following year, in the wake of Brexit, Simon MacDonald, head of the diplomatic service, told MPs, clearly more resources devoted to prosperity than to human rights. And although human rights is one of the things he, we follow, he said, it is not one of our top priorities. That was followed by Theresa May, insisting to reporters accompanying her to the Gulf Cooperation Council in 2016, that it would not serve British interests to raise questions on human rights on that visit. Instead, repeating the myth that if we just de develop ever closer links on trade and security with those countries, they will eventually, by some diplomatic osmosis, start proactively improving their human rights records. A pattern repeated last January, when after her first visit to China, Theresa May, like George Osborne, was praised by the state media for, quote, sidestepping the issue of human rights and putting the importance of 
pragmatic collaboration with China first, leading to their conclusion that, I quote, for the Prime Minister, the losses outweigh the gains if she appeases the UK media at the cost of the visit's friendly atmosphere. And bringing things up right up to date to the present day, while it is certainly not a new idea for Jeremy Hunt to propose that the Foreign Office should throw open its recruitment process for future ambassadors to Britain's business leaders, after all, I believe at different times, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron all said the same. The current Foreign Secretary's version of that plan was telling in today's context because it spoke of a government that increasingly sees our heads of mission overseas primarily as trade envoys, exporting everything except our British values. And given that is a shift which, as I say, we have seen hugely exacerbated as a result of the government's panic over Brexit, it also speaks to what I regard as the other and final fundamental problem affecting today's Foreign Office, the rise of short-termism and the lack of long-term thinking or planning. Far too much of what the Foreign Office now does is, I believe, driven by the short-term news cycle with horizons that stretch only as far as the next global summit, the big overseas visit, or even the next edition of the 10 o'clock news, rather than what the Foreign Office has historically focused on, which is trying to affect fundamental, long-term and lasting change. You take any of the many difficult situations facing the Middle East and North Africa right now and ask yourself either if you understand or think that ministers even know what the long-term strategy is or the plan over the course of the current parliament to achieve peace and stability in Israel and Palestine, in Yemen, in Syria, in Libya, in Afghanistan, in South Sudan, yeah, anywhere. Indeed, it remains shocking to me that not a single one of those countries was even mentioned by the government's manifesto in 2017, which was supposed to set out their plans for this parliament. Just the second Conservative Party manifesto since the Yom Kippur War to contain no mention of the Middle East. So, in summary, those are what I regard as the five biggest current problems the Foreign Office as a department faces, the shortage of funding, the crisis of morale, the muddying of its mission, the downgrading of what should be key principles around values and human rights, and the dominance of short-term thinking over long-term strategies. To adapt a phrase which has become commonplace, perhaps too commonplace, when discussing Whitehall performance over the last decade, I don't believe that the Foreign Office is no longer fit for purpose. I just think that it's lost its purpose and urgently needs to rediscover it in a world where British leadership is needed more than ever. To that end, a Labour government would apply five fundamental and related principles to those problems. First, we would actively seek both to repair the damage that the Foreign Office has suffered as a result of funding cuts and Brexit, and renew the morale and mission of its staff, including given our diplomatic staff the mandate and the resources they need to go out and relentlessly promote both British interests and British values in their host countries. And one of the reasons we will do that relates to a second principle, which is that an incoming Labour government will strive in every situation to strike the right balance between our values and our interests and never again <coughs> accept that our values can be sacrificed or set aside in favour of our commercial interests. However, and this third principle is equally crucial, 
While clear-sighted about the promotion of our values when, promoting, when pursuing our goals, we must be equally clear-sighted in dealing with the world as it is now, not as we would wish it to be, and ready to do whatever we can and deal with whoever it takes to pursue those goals. Which brings me to our fourth principle, which is that we accept that in most situations, change will take time. So we must set long-term goals in relation to every issue we face and be both endlessly patient and also endlessly persistent in their pursuit. And finally, our fifth principle is that a Labour government will always seek to pursue our goals primarily through multilateral means and our key alliances because we recognise that we are always stronger as part of a global community than operating alone. But our interests and values must always come first and should never be sacrificed for the sake of maintaining those alliances. So in the final section of my speech today, let me now talk about some of the practical differences that the application of those principles would mean for Britain's foreign policy and our leadership of the Foreign Office if a Labour government was in place. First, repairing the morale of the Foreign Office and restoring the mission of its staff. I am of the firm belief that the individuals who seek to work for the diplomatic corps, who are prepared to work anywhere in the world that the Foreign Office demands, even in conditions of great danger or surrounded by great hardship, do so not because it is a job, but because it's a vocation. How else can we explain the readiness of those individuals to make huge sacrifices and endure huge disruption to their relationships and their family lives simply because it is what their vocation requires, something that I know all too well from my father's own work at the United Nations. And I would be genuinely surprised if a single soul has ever ticked that box applying for the diplomatic specialism because they dreamed of helping to negotiate trade deals with corrupt and autocratic regimes. Instead, I believe that for the vast majority, their vocation is driven by a desire to promote worldwide the British values of good governance, democracy, equality, education, the rule of law, human rights, and peace. To promote Britain's great strengths in art, culture, and science, and to fight against poverty, prejudice, exploitation, lawlessness, terrorism, and the forces of war. And what a Labour government would promise those individuals is that we believe in the same values that you signed up for. The values that stare down at you from those statues adorning the Foreign Office building every time you walk past it. And we will give you the resources and the mandate to pursue them in whatever country you work or whatever issue or country you manage from Whitehall. And one practical thing we would do to signal that change would be to reverse the trend we have seen in recent years where in our overseas posts it is now too often only our ambassadors and heads of mission who are expected and encouraged and resourced to engage with key players in the countries where they work. Instead I believe every official we employ overseas should have the dedicated time and resources they need to go out and proactively <coughs> build links with local NGOs, faith groups, human rights activists, media, lawyer and academics, and feedback to ministers what we can be doing to support each of those groups in every country who are working to promote the values that we share. I recall the words of one former uh, ambassador who told the Financial Times a few years ago, 
When members of my staff used to come into my office, I'd always look to see how dirty their shoes were. And if not, he said, he knew that they hadn't been getting out and meeting enough people. We need to get back to that spirit. And the same goes for foreign office, for the foreign office or other ministers when they visit those countries to ensure that they engage with those same civil society groups just as much as they do with representatives of government or business. Which takes me to a second principle, that our values will never again be sacrificed on the altar of commercial interests. And let's be frank, the last Labour government, which tried to, prov tried to apply that principle with Robin Cook at the Foreign Office in 1997, insisting that there had to be an ethical dimension to our foreign policy, ultimately failed to strike the right balance or square that circle. So much so that the ethical dimension was very publicly and for Robin Cook, humiliatingly, dropped before the 2001 election because, as a senior source, told The Guardian at the time, it was an embarrassment, we couldn't live up to it, we were always being panned, which they were, especially for maintaining arms sales to governments guilty of gross human rights abuses. And while I think that the whole episode is indicative of some of the frustration people came to feel with the new Labour project, the idea of dropping principles and promises rather than striving ever harder to live up to them, it is also a reminder of how difficult it is to navigate between the pursuit of values and interests. And I am aware how many difficult choices that this is going to entail. But I think the clearer we make it, that the next Labour government will be deadly serious about the pursuit of this goal and happy to be held and judged by our delivery of it, the easier it will be for us to have robust conversations with our allies and our trading partners when they are engaged in action which conflicts with our values and the more likely they will be to take our warning seriously of the consequences that will flow for our alliances and our trading relationships if that action continues. So where Palmerston told the House of Commons in 1848 that while our alliances change over time, our interests are eternal and perpetual, and those interests it is our duty to follow. I would adopt that mantra, but I would say instead, both our interests and our values are eternal and perpetual, and those interests and values it is our duty to uphold, both in equal measure. And in that light, I would repeat now the commitment I made at the Labour Party conference in 2017, that our government would undertake a root and branch review of our current regulatory regime on arms exports with the express objective of ensuring that arms manufactured in this country can never be used to commit war crimes in other countries or suppress internal dissent. And we will also ensure that even after leaving the EU, we have a proper sanctions regime in place to punish the countries and individuals whose actions we condemn. And, in, and indeed, we will think creatively, and Helen Goodman, who's one of my uh, shadow junior ministers, has already been thinking creatively about it, as you will see from the sanctions bill. Um, think creatively about how we can develop our approach to sanctions to make them as effective and efficient as possible. But before anyone thinks that second principle risks cutting off our nose to spite our face by being too idealistic and innocent to deal with countries who breach our values, let me move on to the third principle, that we must deal with the world as it is now, not as we wish it would be, and be ready to do whatever we can and deal with whoever it takes to pursue those goals. 
And yes, that's going to mean working with leaders we don't like and governments we don't agree with, because if we try and operate in some parallel universe where those individuals don't exist and aren't in charge of their countries, we will never achieve change in the real world. Now, some of you will look at that and say, if that means dealing with the likes of Iran and Russia on one side, or Saudi Arabia or Turkey on the other, we will, right at the outset, be compromising the values that we claim will be Labour's foreign policy. But I fundamentally disagree. If we are true to our values and the objectives that flow from those values, we must accept that in the world as it is now, it will, be, it will inevitably mean negotiating with people with whom we don't agree. So in conflict situations where our overriding objective must be the pursuit of peace and the protection of innocent life, we cannot let our distaste for particular governments and our dislike of any proposed solutions put us off the pursuit of that objective. And nowhere does the debate arise more than in the issue of Israel and Palestine, where over the past year I, I have been variously attacked by pro-Palestinian groups for my willingness to engage with representatives of the Israeli government and by pro-Israel groups for my engagement with the Palestinian Authority. But how on earth does either group think that the process of Middle East peace can be moved forward if the only way for a British politician to avoid criticism is to talk to neither side? Instead, we have to remember Lloyd George's words to his Middle East envoy, Sir Ronald Storr, if either side stops complaining, you'll be dismissed. So unlike the current government, I would be prepared to criticise Erdogan, Bin Salman and Netanyahu when their actions or words conflict with our values, just as I do Putin, Rouhani and Abbas. But to say on principle that we would refuse to deal with any of those leaders or their governments, even when dealing with them is essential for the pursuit of our objectives, would be utterly pointless and self-defeating. And while some treat foreign policy as a binary choice between the idealism of Woodrow Wilson and the realism of Henry Kissinger, the truth is that the only way to achieve a principled but an impactful foreign policy is to be idealistic about our ends and realistic about the means to reach them. And there is a similar trade-off in the fourth principle I've outlined, setting long-term goals in relation to every issue we face and being endlessly persistent and endlessly patient in their pursuit. Because for every spectacular and sudden change we have seen in our world over the past two centuries, think of the 30th anniversaries that we're going to mark later this year in Berlin and Prague and Bucharest, there are dozens more significant changes that took years or decades to achieve. And as I said earlier, that kind of long-term thinking and objective setting required to achieve that change is something that the current government and today's Foreign Office seems to me to have entirely lost sight of. Not just because of the extremely short-term obsession with Brexit and its aftermath, but because of a departmental culture which is unfortunately trying to mirror the rest of Whitehall and its emphasis on the news cycle and quick wins. And the old phrase, you know, not seeing the wood for the trees, is particularly apt for, the, for this case, because in my view, that almost alone in Whitehall, the Foreign Office used to see its role as a forester does. Not like a farmer planting a crop to harvest six months later, but instead planting seeds that will take years or even generations of careful cultivation to come to fruition and change the landscape. Not one year programme can deliver that, 
not one desk officer for a particular country, and certainly not one minister, but each of them can know, each of them can know this, that if they are working to clear long-term objectives of what they can achieve and sensible timelines to achieve them, those objectives will be handed down one year, one desk officer and one minister to the next, and each of them will have made their vital contribution when change finally comes. And let me give four examples of where that long-term approach will be very different to what we are seeing today for the Foreign Office on some of the biggest issues the world is currently facing. On the Middle East, rather than hoping against hope that Donald Trump's son-in-law will come up with a plan that nobody has considered in the last 70 years, uh, we, might, we might need to take a sensible view that in the absence of any genuinely constructive attempt to work towards a two-state solution by the current US and Israeli leadership, the primary role the UK government can play over the next few years is to keep the dream of Palestinian statehood alive, work with the international community to alleviate the humanitarian <coughs> crisis facing the Palestinian people, and strive to persuade the Palestinian Authority to stick with the Oslo principles and remain committed to a two-state solution until there is new leadership in place, especially in America, prepared to restart inclusive talks based on those principles. On China, as we move further into what will come to be defined as the Chinese century, we need Beijing to take an increasingly active role in preserving the rules-based world order, in delivering sustainable development goals worldwide, in restoring the ambitions of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, in tackling the global refugee crisis, and in pursuing a world free from war, persecution, and hardship. And yes, as part of that, we would hope to see China itself radically improve on its domestic record on human rights, democracy, and freedom of speech and religion. And if encouraging China towards those objectives seems like a very distant prospect at this point, it may well be. But that is all the more reason to start the in incremental pursuit of those goals now, in the same way that China's largely symbolic signing of the Kyoto Protocol 20 years ago gradually paved the way for the leadership role it undoubtedly shows on climate change today. And on the issue of climate change, before we reach the point of no return in terms of global temperatures, we must confront the reality that the long-term targets agreed in Paris in 2015 are pointless. As long as some major world leaders are happy to ignore them, others shrug their shoulders when asked how to plan to achieve them, and others who are taking serious action to cut their reliance on carbon are left asking themselves, what is the point? This is a collective problem, a collective failure, and there must be a long-term collective solution, which I personally believe lies in taking the progressive American notion of a Green New Deal, where the fight against climate change becomes the driver of job creation and economic growth, and turning that concept into something that every country across the world adopts, using the natural advantages their climate and geography grants them in, in terms of generating clean energy, not just to create jobs and growth domestically and to cut their carbon emissions, but to develop technology and skills that they can export to others. And we must align that, pro that proposition with the argument that climate justice is not just about protecting the world's poorest people from environmental damage for which they are least responsible. 
but it's also about protecting poorer people in every country, including those suffering from fuel poverty, from losing their livelihoods or suffering financial hardship as a result of efforts to tackle emissions. And in the Labour Party, we would make that globalisation of the Green New Deal and the global approach to climate justice a central priority if we come into government. And as a final example of the need for a long-term thinking and planning, let's take the vexed issue of UN reform, a term alternately used by incoming general secretaries to describe their own personal agendas and by politicians around the world as a stick with which to beat the UN. What, is no, what it is not at present is a term which stands for any concrete, agreed, long-term goals about what the UN, its agencies and its decision-making processes should look like in 10 or 20 years' time, and a plan for how those changes will be delivered. So, for example, while we know it would be near impossible in political terms for the current leaders of the P5 on the Security Council to agree short-term changes to the composition of the Council, or reforms to the misuse of veto powers, or additions to its permanent membership to ensure an equal voice for India and the continents of Africa and South America, it would clearly be more realistic to turn those changes into long-term goals and work gradually to, to persuade other countries around the world to sign up to them. And talking of the UN brings me on to the fifth and final principle, that we must always seek to pursue our goals primarily through multilateral means and our key alliances, but at the same time, never sacrifice British values and interests for the sake of maintaining those alliances. I hope the first half of the principle doesn't really need spelling out, other than it is a statement of historical fact that we can always exert more power and influence if we pursue our objectives when acting in concert with our allies such as the United States. And through multilateral bodies like the Commonwealth, NATO, the UN and indeed, indeed the European Union than we ever can do when acting alone. And Labour as the party in government when Britain helped to create the UN, when we signed the NATO's treaties and when we agreed landmark agreements on the nuclear non-proliferation climate change and the Millennium Development Goals, we will always remember that lesson. But let me explain what I meant by the other half of that principle, which is that it has become a disturbing mantra in the last two decades that the maintenance of our strategic alliances, other than with Europe of course, is the consideration allowed to subsume all others. We can trace it back to Tony Blair and his commitment to George W. Bush that he would be with you, whatever, on Iraq. But it brings it back to the present day. Theresa May doesn't even have the misguided ideological fixation that Tony Blair had on reshaping the Middle East. Just an instinctive, panicked reaction to Brexit, which says this is not the time to lose friends elsewhere, no matter who those friends are, or whether they behave like friends should. <coughs> How else do we explain the craven indulgence of the human rights abuses committed by President Sisi in Egypt or President Erdogan in Turkey and frankly the shameful blind eye being turned to the crimes of Crown Prince bin Salman? But a Labour government would, I guarantee, be different. Applying, simply by applying the principle that I've spelt out that above our alliances above the protection and pursuit of our commercial and security interests, there must be certain values and rules which we take to be inviolable. 
and that we will apply with consistency. And the key word there is consistency. Because for too long, and this was as true of the past Labour government as it is true of the present Conservative one, there has been a grave tendency to patronise and punish those nations with whom our trade links and our strategic alliances are less important because their human rights abuses are safe to criticise and their breaches of international law are easy to support UN resolutions against, while the stronger countries have had their own abuses and crimes ignored and indulged. Well, kick down and kiss up has never been my personal style and it wouldn't be my policy as Foreign Secretary. Nor will there ever be a lurch in the other direction. The point is not to turn the tables, but to treat both sides the same. So under a Labour Foreign Office, I can also guarantee that there will be no indulgence of human rights abuses because they are committed by less powerful countries or by countries that call themselves socialist, but who by their actions betray every socialist ideal. So those would be our five key principles for the Foreign Office and the five standards I would be happy to be held to and judged by if I was given the honour of becoming Labour's next Foreign Secretary. And if I was speaking to any civil servant walking into the Foreign Office today, passing those statues I mentioned at the start of my speech today, what I would say to them is this. I hope within a year or two of a Labour government coming to power, you will feel even prouder to, to, to do that job and even more valued than you are now. You will certainly be better resourced and empowered. You will know your mission is always to promote our nation's values as well as our nation's interests. That your job is, much, is as much about the ob objectives of justice, good governance and human rights as it is about the objective of trade. And that the contribution you will make to achieve those long-term goals will ensure that you can look back on your career as one that genuinely changed the world. That's the kind of foreign office I hope they would feel inspired to work for. And that is the kind of foreign office that I feel personally inspired to lead. Thank you. Emily Thornberry, thank you very much indeed for that very wide-ranging talk, both on the Foreign Office itself and on the values that you say a Labour government would bring to foreign policy. And I want, I want to ask you some things about both of those. Mm. Let me start with the Foreign Office itself. Yeah. Uh, you've talked about um, it, how it was diminished by the Department of International Trade and DEXU uh, being, being created. Would you fold them back in? I have to say that I think the amount of disruption that's been, been caused by the creation of these departments, it's not going to be, it wouldn't be in anybody's interest, I think, to go through the disruption of, of uh, re-amalgamating. Of course, you know, the department for exiting the uh, European Union has allegedly uh, got a short uh, shelf life, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but, uh, but I think that it was immensely, um, I think it was disruptive in a way that was unnecessary, but it's done now. Okay. We agree with you at the Institute. We're all against yeah. creating loads of, loads of new uh, departments, though incidentally that is part of other parts of labour policy uh, on housing and labour and so on. Um, so FCO stays as it is. You talked about restoring its resources. Back to when? Pre-Osborne? The Blair years? 
I think this is something that I would need to have detailed discussions with John McDonnell about. I wouldn't want to be making uh, uh, commitments at this stage, but the principles are there, and they're, just, they're discussions that we're having with the Treasury team. What about the MOD's budget? Because, of course, it's part of British foreign policy and how Britain represents itself in, in the world. And it's had a you know, big, big squeeze, about 12% down in real terms over the past eight years in day-to-day -day spending. What would you do about that? Well, our, policy com I mean, our, our, our political commitment is to, is to keep to the 2%. And also to make sure that that's two percent of GDP that we spend. Two percent of GDP, yeah. but also we think that the Conservatives have been bundling all kinds of things into the two percent pensions and various mm. other things that actually weren't there before. <coughs> and I think people also, when they look at uh, historically what Labour governments have have done, we have historically, in fact, spent more than the two percent. But the commitment is to at least two percent. Mm. You've talked about um, quite a few points in this, quite tough on Saudi Arabia, and you've talked elsewhere about it. You've talked about bin Laden, about, about British arms used in, in, in Yemen, and, and so on. Should British com companies who are now exporting to Saudi Arabia expect that if Labour gets in, they should look for their sales to end? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, arms that are currently used in the war in Yemen um, should no longer be sold to the Saudis until and unless we have an independent inquiry into human rights abuses and breaches of international law. International law. Um, so yes, I mean, BA Systems, for example, have known this. It's been our policy for more than two years now. Um, we're quite clear about it. We believe that it is wrong to sell the planes and the bombs that are currently being used in Yemen. So what about British arms sales to Israel, which have just reached a new peak? I think that the... Um, I mean, I think that it's, it's right for Israel to be able to defend itself. We believe in a two-state solution, which means that we have to have a, um, two viable states um, that are safe and secure. So as part of that, it must be that Israel should be able to defend itself. Um, there would be a question. I've recently um, written to Jeremy Hunt about my grave concerns about some of the very bellicose language which is being expanded on um, by the Israelis and indeed being, we're told that, and it may be because they're about to run into an election, but you know, we do have to take seriously that there have been discussions between um, the Israelis and the Americans about what would be acceptable action that they would take against Iran. And my deep concern is that they have been given the green light for attacks on um, what would be called Iranian outposts in Iraq and in Iran. I think that the, the ramping up of hostility um, in the Middle East against Iran and um, is something that we're overlooking and is of, of great potential concern, it seems to me. I mean, Iran is seven times the size of, of Syria. You know, we really do not want to be sleepwalking into a conflict involving Iran. Thanks for that. I want to pick up on, again, on some of these points about, about values and what you've oh, given sorry, us. And, is, and, yeah, and, and just, yeah. just to finish that off, and as a friend of Israel, I think it's right for me to warn Israel about that. And that's what I've, that's what I've done. No, no, thank, thank you for that point. What you've given us, in a way, is, is you've spoken very warmly of Robin Cook here and, uh, and other, other places. And what you've given us, in a way, is Robin Cook with realism. Um, Robin Cook 2.0. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I'd love that. Uh, <laughs> that was how I was known as. <laughs> the, um, yes. If we look back to um, some of the things that he said, I mean, when he was explaining British support for the NATO action in, in Kosovo, uh, he said, had we done nothing in response, we would have been complicit in that evil. 
On the other hand, Jeremy Corbyn opposed that military action. In retrospect, who was right? Robin. Thank you. In Venezuela, the, the point that a lot of the media this morning has picked up on is your, is, is your comment that, you know, there were, under a, a Labour Foreign Office, I can guarantee there will be no indulgence uh, of human rights abuses uh, and, um, you said by less powerful countries or by governments who call themselves socialist but who by their actions betray every socialist ideal. Obviously people have taken that as uh, referring to Venezuela. Do you think that this government is right in the way that it has joined the US and France and many other countries in calling for new presidential polls? Yeah, and, and, and we have as well. Um, and I mean, I was sort of interested in the amount of, of coverage of this um, this morning because I've said just as much in, uh, in an urgent question on Venezuela, um, I think it was last week. Um, in fact, I probably said more, so go and look that up. Um, but, but we have said that there should be, that there needs to be negotiations, that there needs to be, that, 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 that there needs to be mediation, that there are countries in the region who are, like Mexico, who are, who, who, who've already said that they would step up to ensuring that there was some sort of mediation, but of course there needs to be new elections, and it's a question of ensuring that that happens in a timely and effective way. Well, there have been quite a lot of comments from Labour. I absolutely uh, accept you, you've said that, but there have also been ones about saying this is one for Venezuelans, they should, other countries should not, not intervene. Well, I mean, um, let's, let's, I mean, you know, yeah. there is also on the other side, you know, we see photographs of, I can't remember who it was from the administration, you know, coming out of a building with his notes, mm. where photographs were taken, and it was saying about the number of troops that they were going to be putting, you know, one potential qu question mark, you know, I can't remember how many troops in Colombia, you know, in order to invade Venezuela. I think it was John Bolton. Thank and, and there's much, much, much question about whether or not this was a deliberate uh, signal. Well, um, you know, and then we hear, you know, Donald Trump talking about he doesn't take, you know, invasion off the table and so on. I mean, this is not the way. You know, the, the history of American intervention in South America has not been a happy tale. You know, this is mm. not the way to do it. Um, and so there are extremes, you know, and sometimes some of the things which are partially quoted that some Labour politicians may have said is in response to what the Americans said. So let's put the whole context in. Our position is there should be no invasion. There should be proper discussion and negotiation. There should be timely elections. It is quite clear that the government of Venezuela does not have, is, is on the face of it, is, is responsible for human rights abuses, uh, who does not have a plan for how to get themselves out of the situation in which they're currently in, where I think 10% of Venezuelans are now outside Venezuela. Mm. Millions have, have walked, some of them, into surrounding countries. There has to be a change. There has to be a change made. And you know, that needs to occur. Right. And, and we're and, not and to, pulling and, our punches right. on this. And to be, and to be clear, yeah, you'd support international pressure to bring about these new polls. Yes, of course. Yeah. But that doesn't yeah. mean invasion. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I quite take that point on that. But I want that just because of this, these questions which do persist about whether Labour would back our military action in some circumstances, and I'm not talking about Venezuela, but say about Syria. If we look back to the 2013 vote, uh, where you oppo opposed, as did Labour, the, the uh, military intervention in mm. uh, the, the UK supporting mm. uh, the US in that. Uh, that led to President Assad, who seemed to be uh, about to be dislodged at that point, now um, uh, staying in power. Uh, does that look a mistake in retrospect? See, I don't buy this narrative. And, and I think that you know, the sort of principles we should apply are 
Intervention means many things. You can intervene on many different levels. Military intervention is the very last resource, but, but you should only be doing that in any event. And surely, you know, after the Iraq war and we wait 10 years for a report to come out, we ought to have read it, you know, and it was quite clear that one of the mistakes that we made in Iraq was not having a plan. And what distressed me, frankly, was that, was that the, you know, to hear from David Cameron when this report came out, saying, oh, well, we've already learned the lessons. Well, we haven't. Look what happened in Libya. You know, we did not have a plan. There is no point just going into a country to having military action and thinking, we've got to do something. I mean, when a politician say we've got to do something, people should head for the hills. You know, because it doesn't necessarily mean that we're thinking straight and we're thinking long term. We need to think long term. I am certainly not against military action when it is required, but it has to be as part of a plan. And without a plan, there is no point in just doing it for the sake of doing it and for the sake of short term headlines. Thank you. Let me ask you just finally and inevitably about Brexit. Um, your constituency voted about three quarters for yeah, Remain. Yeah. As I did. Yeah, and, and, and you said the day after, look, this is really going to be uh, you know, potentially dreadful. What are your feelings now about what this means for the country and for your constituency? I'm very surprised in some ways that 70% of the country is now not in favour of remaining in the European Union. Because if we look at the evidence before our eyes, there are so many truthful things that could have been written on the side of the bus that are not good. But they haven't. And I don't know why that is. I think part of that is because of the nature of the debate, which has not been led in an honest way by the government. We've had Theresa May avoiding talking about it at all for a very long time while she made up her mind and then coming out with plans which I don't think are realistic and in any event keep changing in any event. And so there's not been the sort of honest debate. But in the meantime, I think, too many people who voted for Brexit hear, it may not be what is said or what's meant sometimes, but what they hear is that they only voted for Brexit because they're racist, because they're stupid, because they were manipulated by the Russians. I haven't met anybody who voted to leave the European Union who are any of those things and certainly don't think themselves as any of those things and they're getting dug in in their opinions. And the anger that caused them to vote to, to leave the European Union remains because I think the underlying causes of people being left behind, of being ignored, of not being London, not being the South East, continue. And, and we should have, we should, we should be a little bit more humble when listening to what the public have to say to us and really listening to what the public have to say to us. Because at a time when people just end up shouting at one another, we won't get any, we won't be able to pull the country back together again. So my view has been since the Brexit vote that, that it's our duty to, to do as we're told with public servants. I may not think it's a great idea to leave the European Union. I definitely don't think it is. And I'm completely honest about that. But it is my duty to, to, tr to do everything I can from opposition to try to deliver a Brexit that is the most practical and pragmatic, that will look after people's jobs and the economy more than anything else. And what we have been trying to do from opposition is to lay the groundwork for that. And that is what we have been trying to do. And so to avoid no deal, can you see circumstances in which you would back uh, the deal that the Prime Minister has brought? I don't think that we can back this, this deal. I think that what people need is some certainty. And frankly, what we need, as I think I said, I'm doing Prime Minister's questions today. I think I first did Prime Minister's questions two years ago, two and a quarter years ago, 
during which time I said the only way to solve the issue of the Northern Irish border is to have a customs union. And we on this side of the house believe that that's what we should have. And Theresa May is banging her head against the customs union and her determination not to have a customs union. And it really is nonsense. You know, there is no alternative that will work properly. You either stay in the European Union, you leave with no deal, you have a customs union, you cannot chase unicorns. Thank you. I want to bring in some questions because I think there are going to be loads and we don't have, um, you, you don't have that much time um, here in the middle. Yep. James Landell, BBC. James. Morning. Um, a couple of quick questions. Um, on the, the balance between values and commercial interests um, debate, yes. um, do you accept that, that by rebalancing it in the way that you envisage, there would come at a cost? That it's a zero-sum game in some circumstances and that by promoting values that will have a, an impact on British commercial interests and potentially jobs in the UK? And, and you accept, in principle, that is a price worth paying. And the second question is, can you say a little bit more about China? Um, do you see China as an opportunity or a threat? And would a future Labour government ban Huawei from the United Kingdom? Yes. Um, I think that... Um, I think there will be lots of things that we would want to do as a, as a radical Labour government by way of rebalancing our economy, of putting greater emphasis and investment in different aspects of our economy. Um, and, and I think having a foreign policy that we can be proud of, that gets, that regains our status and our standing in the world is something that people want. They hate the idea that people around the world currently laugh at us. Look, Great Britain. And with our great history and traditions, it's appalling that we have got to where we are. It does seem to me that when, we used to, I suppose, didn't we? We used to kind of, navigate ourselves between the sort of two poles, you know, one being Europe and one being um, our friends in America. And we used to kind of try and navigate a path between those two. And now it's really difficult because we're leaving the European Union. And I'm sorry, but who knows what's happening with America. Um, we, we, it's as if we're sort of lost. And of course, there's a the challenge of Brexit as well. And I think that when you're lost in those ways, you have to pair back to your to what it is that you believe in and who you are. And that's why I think we should use as our guiding light the principles that Britain has been proud of and should be proud of. And we don't seem to give sufficient you know, importance to. I don't know <laughs> in relation to China is my honest answer. So I don't think that I'm going to sit here and bullshit you, James. <laughs> <laughs> Brief reprieve for, for, for Huawei at the moment. Right, James sneaked in with two questions before I remembered to stop here. Because of a lot of hands up, can, we, uh, can people uh, struggle to restrain themselves to one? Right, uh, let's, let's go from uh, front here and then, uh, then across. Thanks. If people next door want to ask a question, stick your head around the door. So, Paul Ingram from BASIC. Um, it's a nuclear question that doesn't refer to Trident. Um, we have the review conference coming up next year for the non-proliferation treaty. Mm. It's in a mess. Mm. Uh, it's seriously um, damaging to global security. Uh, what, how would you apply the principles that you've outlined today to the issue of nuclear non-proliferation and global disarmament? I don't think that, the, that what is happening with the non-proliferation treaties has had anything like the amount of uh, attention that it should do. I think that it is really worrying, and it should worry us all, 
that uh, that the uh, particularly medium range uh, weapons have been are being you know, the treaty in relation to that is being seems to be being torn up before our eyes. Of course, it isn't perfect, and of course, it needs to be amended, and of course, it needs there needs you know more work to be done in terms of enforcing it, and of course, China should be should be um, encouraged to be involved in that. But I, what really worries me, Paul, is that I think we're moving into a situation whereby people really think that they can, in a war situation, use nuclear weapons, just little ones, little ones on the battlefield, and everything will be fine, and it won't get out of hand. And that's a, that seems to be becoming just sort of accepted. Um, and the Russians, I accept that the Russians probably started it, um, but they're not finishing it, you know, and other countries are doing it too. And it is, I mean, I think second to climate change, the, the biggest, mm. biggest threat to our world. I mean, I agree with you, and I think it is something that should have much greater emphasis than it does. Thank you very much. I'm going to try and squeeze in uh, three more. I'm going to take them at once here, here, and right at the back. David I'm going to try, try and make it four, actually. Uh, David, David, David Hughes from the Press Association. Um, taking you back to Venezuela, uh -huh. um, you've said that you want, uh, obviously, an end to human rights abuses and early elections. Um, do you think that international sanctions would have a role to play in pressuring the Maduro regime to uh, accept those conditions? Okay, great. Thanks. And let's take another one at the same time over here. Hello. Hello, um, Siobhan Foster-Perkins from the British Council. Um, I just wanted to return to the idea around championing values. Um, I just wondered what you saw the role of soft power being here mm. and how would you develop that under um, your kind of foreign policy? Mm. Thank you. Let's take those two and then squeeze in two more at the end. I think that we should use whatever means are necessary. I mean, we did hear an awful lot of nonsense in the comments um, of the urgent question when there was a question asked to the minister about uh, sanctions and if we introduce sanctions to Venezuela, won't it be the people who will suffer? To which his extraordinarily glib and irresponsible answer was, um, well, it doesn't matter introducing sanctions because any money that goes into Venezuela goes straight into the pocket of the president. I do think that we need to have a little bit more of a subtle and nuanced analysis than that. And, um, and we have a responsibility to try to do things that aren't basically striking a pose, but are things that are effective. I am personally a great believer in sanctions, and I think that it is the, one of the new ways in which um, foreign policy can, can, well, we can use a bit of muscle um, effectively that doesn't involve killing people. <laughs> um, it bluntly um, and I think that there is much more creative work that can be done um, I'm very interested in it and, um, and as I said in my speech you know Helen Goodman has been doing a lot of work for us on this um, and I think particularly targeted sanctions against individuals I think that it's one of the things which the Americans have developed, have developed re in a really interesting way and you know until now our sanctions policy has been in line with the European Union perhaps one of the few positives of leaving the European Union is that we may be able to be more creative in terms of developing a sanctions policy um, and working out how best to apply pressure. Now obviously again that is done best multilaterally but I think that more could be done. I think that it is a 21st century tool um, that could be used more than it is. Um, and as for soft power, 
Yeah, I mean, I probably should have. I mean, the trouble the trouble is, is that once I start talking about soft power, I could, don't stop um, because I, I think it is absolutely right. Of course, it is. It's one of the. Um, I think that we have so many aces um, when it comes to soft power, um, and uh, perhaps unlike almost any other country in the world, I think. Um, and yes, we shouldn't take them for granted. We shouldn't. You know, just think that they will thrive. I think that it is a really important part of who we are, and that is, and it comes back to some of the things I was saying, you know, about the statues on the Foreign Office, you know, the arts and culture, and, you know, and so on, are all part of it too. Um, so yes, I do think that, uh, that as much encouragement as we can give, realistically, and, and being sensitive to it and aware of it, and aware of how powerful it can be, um, rather than just turning a, sometimes turning a bit of a, a blind eye to it, um, it would be important, I think, yeah. Maybe there should be a new statue, though, for Brexit. Um, <laughs> to, to squeeze in uh, a few more here. From the Guardian, just going back to Venezuela, the, the issue at hand, as far as I understand it, is whether you think the interim president should be recognised, i.e. Juan Maduro, or whether you think, Juan uh, Guano, or, or do you think Maduro should stay as the recognised president? Let's take that one. I, I will get. I mean, again, we asked the government this, and we said, you know, you've said that um, that there should be elections within eight days. Um, what are you going to do if it doesn't happen? You know, I don't think that you can put. You know, you can't make demands without knowing how what you're going to do next. It's, it is again about not striking a pose, trying to do things that are realistic and practical and will actually get somewhere. I am a great believer in if I'm here and want to get there, how do you get there? So the question then is, you know, how practically do we, do we ensure that there is change in Venezuela? I think that the regional voices are very important um, and I think that we should be led by them much more than we are rather than unilaterally or almost unilaterally deciding, you know, this must happen by this date. I actually think that there should be proper dialogue and that dialogue can be facilitated by the regional powers. And again, it's a question of kind of approaching this with a little bit more humility. I'm saying that there needs to, I'm saying, What I'm saying is that, is that we begin with dialogue. We begin with dialogue. And, and you know, that, I mean, that offer has been made, hasn't it? Um, internally and externally, we need to ensure that that happens. Um, and I think that that's the best way to proceed rather than to suddenly say, that's it, we've had enough, we recognize X, we don't, we don't recognize Y anymore. That's not the way to, to treat another country even a country in as desperate a situation as Venezuela. But if we're going to have lasting and proper change, it has to be on the basis of dialogue, which hasn't happened yet. I'm incredibly sorry. We're going to have to stop there. I really apologize to the people there. Their, their, their hands up. I'm sure those would have been terrific questions. But I gave Emily's team a firm promise uh, that she could leave at quarter two. So you can go and relax at PMQs. <laughs> um, Emily Thornbury, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. Not at all.